I'm happy to be adding to the bucket of, of stories about women that will compel others to research more about women's stories. They're coming out more and more and it's faster and more furious now, but it's still work. So I, I hope that it will compel and give ground for other stories to be written. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was author and historian Dr. Suzanne Evans discussing the legacy she hopes to create with her work. In the following conversation, Dr. Evans shares about the inspiration and research involved in her books, Mothers of Heroes, Mothers of Martyrs, World War One and the Politics of Grief, and The Taste of Longing, Ethel Mulvaney and her Starving Prisoners of War cookbook. And Dr. Evans gives her thoughts on war, the use of propaganda, creativity, and survival, and how she defines justice. Dr. Suzanne Evans, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Would you begin with an overview of your background and your work? Yeah, I started down this path in not not having any idea where I was going because I I had done a degree in philosophy. And then, you know, what kind of a wonderful job do you get with a a four-year degree in philosophy? Well, you go to China to teach English, to learn more without having to pay tuition. So that's kind of where I started, my starting point, uh, far away from home. And from those overseas experiences, that China and subsequent ones, I learned a lot about about Canada. I wanted, you know, it gave me some altitude. And I ended up, you know, writing about women in Canada and uh, women in war and religion. So those are my my themes. And I when I came back to Canada, I got a job with the Canadian International Development Agency in Ottawa. It doesn't exist anymore, but my work was to organize educational briefings for Canadians who were going to work and live overseas. And we hired all kinds of wonderful professionals to come and talk with us. And some of the people that I got to hire uh, were professors at the two universities in town here in Ottawa, Carleton and University of Ottawa from the religious studies department. And I was just fascinated that you could actually study about religion without having to sign your name on the dotted line in blood. I had no idea that you could do this. And so I think for those lectures, I was I was more interested than the participants that we were supposed to be educating. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just take one course in religious studies, just one. And for someone of my background, that was kind of like stepping into the devil's lair because I had been brought up 
to believe firmly that religion was the root of all evil and the cause of all wars. So I was somewhat apprehensive about this, but uh, my my fascination won out over my prejudices, and I ended up course by course doing a PhD in religious studies. And I, the topic I chose to work on, I, you know, it was a nod to to my personal history because it was a it's a pivotal point between war and religion, and that's the study of martyrdom. And, you know, you, martyrs are, are created during wartime. And I came to that topic in the 1990s, when the topic of martyrdom was just starting to be discussed again. It was like an old dead topic from long ago until then and and what was going on in the Middle East it became a more prominent topic of study and I came across a story of a mother of a martyr a Palestinian mother of a martyr who presented her the sacrifice of her son as being a joyous thing and I couldn't get over that I just didn't understand at all. At the time, I had two tiny little children, and I thought, well, that's that's just perverse. How could you do that? So if something's perverse, you have to follow up on it. And, and it was just my ignorance to think of it as being perverse. perverse. Uh, so anyway, that ended up being a topic of, of study um, for my doctorate and for the first book, um, Mother's of heroes, mothers of martyrs, World War One, and the politics of grief, and I, I looked at stories from different religious traditions because I wanted to compare. And I, I so there's there's Jewish mothers of martyrs and Christian and Muslim and Sikh mothers of martyrs, and I thought, well, okay, there's all these really interesting stories, but. I live in the 20th century in Canada, and how does this relate to me? So I looked for something that I could relate to. And I had I had moved to Ottawa not long before, well, to when I came back from China, I moved to Ottawa, and it was a new city. I had never gone to a Remembrance Day ceremony. I had only gone to peace marches in my youth, and this but my husband, who's a native from Ottawa, said, oh, no, we have to go. It's, it's something that you do. And that was the first time I came across the figure of the Silver Cross Mother, who is um, one of the mothers of a soldier who has been killed in Canada's wars or peacekeeping missions, who is chosen to lay a wreath on the cenotaph on Remembrance Day. And now now it can be, um, it doesn't have to be a mother. It can be any any member of the family or a friend uh, that the soldier chooses to receive a silver cross medal. So it can be anybody now, but at that time it was just mothers. And so I looked into the history of this and it came about after the First World War when the, the medal was struck. And so I looked into all the stories in Canada 
of the Silver Cross Mother and its development and how mothers of soldiers were presented in the media. So I was able to bring my studies home again, so to speak. And then because it was my work was, you know, focused around Canada and World War One, I was able to get a postdoctoral fellowship at the Canadian War Museum. I had never thought of doing that. And I also have to admit that uniforms are something I would almost have an allergic reaction to. <laughs> Going to church, one, and, and uniforms, the other. So I am just like racing ahead into all the things that I have been brought up to have prejudices against. So there I am in the War Museum. <laughs> and that was one of the best working experiences I have ever had working in um, a gallery and museum like that. And just seeing what happens behind, uh, behind the scenes and the research that's done there. So my mandate for that fellowship was just to study stories of Canadian women and war. And the woman that I was working with, uh, that, who curated the art at the the war art at the museum, Laura Brandon, she just dropped this diary from uh, it was belonged to a friend of hers, great aunt. She dropped it on my lap and she said, you know, maybe you could do something with this. And it was this great aunt was a masseuse in the First World War. And I thought, well, okay, sure. I know nothing about this topic, so I might as well start here. And that led me to a study of women um, becoming physiotherapists during the First World War. And at first, you know, they were all thought of as just merely masseuses and you know, just a bare step up from a hooker, basically. So they didn't go into this with a great name. And this is, you know, it started off more in England because um, people were going over, women were going over, nurses and masseuses were going over to England and France to help out in the hospitals. But it just happened that they, they were really useful. These women who could... Uh, do massage and they knew about muscles and they knew about exercise and that led to educational developments for uh, these women and so I wrote about that and how it extended to the second world war so you know if you study about physiotherapy well what's the next obvious step it's going to be occupational therapy so I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll look into that and, and also nutritionists. And again, this was main, a mainly female-dominated what became a profession. It wasn't a profession, first of all, but it became that way through driving force of, of individual women. And so you think of, well, I thought of uh, basket weaving. You know, basket weaving 101, it's something, you know, when you go to university, you you are told which courses are the simple ones and they're the basket weaving ones. And actually, that was one of the first elements of occupational therapy 
for the wounded veterans in the First World War. And it's not easy. <laughs> so I was looking at uh, the different aspects of occupational therapy. Um, weaving was another part. And then I came across stories of quilts. And that led me to look for, you know, I just Googled around stories of Canada and quilts and Second World War and bingo. Up comes the story of the Changi quilts. And they were made in Changi Jail, which is in Singapore. And it's a notorious jail, or was, maximum security, built by the British for the worst of their worst prisoners. And in the Second World War, the Japanese, of course, uh, took over Singapore and all the Brits and um, European expats ended up in that jail. Well, not all of them, but many of them, civilians. And there was one Canadian woman amongst that crew, and that was uh, Ethel Mulvaney. She was from Manitoulin Island, and she was the one who organized the creation of those quilts. So I thought that, you know, that's interesting. I could I could write up a little article for about that. But then I found out that she had written a cookbook while she was a prisoner, a starving prisoner, most importantly, a starving prisoner. And I thought, well, that is perverse. How could you possibly focus on the one thing that you cannot have, namely food? And again, that was a point of ignorance on my part, because as I discovered later on, this is exactly what you do when you are starving. You, you were thinking about food all the time. And there were prisoners all over the world in concentration camps, men, women, everybody. They were writing and talking about food. So anyway, that, that intrigued me. And I wanted to find out more about Ethel and her cookbook. And so that's where that led me. And I'm still kind of wallowing around in um, food studies and where that will take me. Well, you have touched on so many points that I want to follow up on. So perhaps I'll start with The Taste of Longing, which is the book about Ethel Mulvaney. Maybe uh, okay. begin with how long mm -hmm. did you research that book? There are so many facets to this woman's life that are fascinating and, and heartbreaking in many ways. And so perhaps you could just uh, hone in on that a bit. It took too long <laughs> to research. <laughs> um, so I first met her, so to speak, in 2011, uh, although she died in 1992, but I, I came across her name in, in 2011. And the book was published in 2020. So I wasn't researching all of that time, but a lot of it. And I, you know, I would find these like mm, rich deposits of information. And then I would go for a long time. And it was, it seemed like everywhere I looked, it was kind of dry going. And then there would be just another rich deposit. 
So I, you know, I start with, well, I started out with incredible luck because I was driving to a yoga class with my neighbor across the street and I had just found out about Ethel and I, I knew I, I wanted to know more. And I remember gripping the steering wheel and saying, I just found out about this woman and I, I need to know more. And her name is Ethel Mulvaney. And my neighbor said, oh, I know about Ethel. <laughs> her, her nieces live in town. Would you like to meet them? Uh, you know, I mean, serendipity doesn't come in bigger slices. So I got to meet both of them. And well, one of them was a, the, the holder of Ethel's wartime ephemera and archives. And I would go to visit Marion King, was her name, in her home. And she was in her 80s then, and she she kept all of Ethel's stuff down in the basement. And she would have to walk down the basement stairs backwards because she got vertigo if she went forwards. And she would bring up all these treasures from the basement. And every time I came, it was a different set of treasures and, and more stories. There were photographs. There were uh, her Bible that she... She chewed the margins of her Bible thinking, well, there's glue there. The glue is made out of horses' hooves, and that's got protein in it, so it must be good for me. And they, she had her, her Red Cross badge that she cherished. She worked very hard for the Red Cross there in Singapore. Anyway, many other things. So that was a gold mine. And her other niece um was just full of stories she's a great storyteller she said I'm quite like Ethel um we're we're both on transmit and rarely on receive so anyway that was that was great to get all that um and at Marion's place she she called me up one day and she said I found these these the cd and I, I don't know what it is. It might be an interview of a couple of school kids for up in the Manitoulin because that's Ethel was from Manitoulin Island. Anyway, so I I get home. It's the first time I've heard Ethel's voice. So this is exciting. And it's just pure hell trying to make head or tail of this. Uh, these in, these well, what turned out to be fifteen hours of interviews. And I, it was a long process to try and understand her. First of all, she and what turned out to be a fabulous journalist from McLean's magazine was, was interviewing her, but they didn't know about tapes. And she would just like, they finally got the tape recorder going and then she just walked away. So you couldn't hear her. And then sometimes when she was there, it sounded like she was at the bottom of a swimming pool. Anyway, I finally got to understand their language and their questions and Ethel's tendency to just go off on these wild tangents when I'm thinking, please answer the question, get to the point. But I realized eventually that 
these huge tangents were just a wealth of information. Um, so that was that was a brilliant um, resource to rely on. And um, I think, oh, two more, two more notable resources. One was the daughter of Ethel's ex-husband. So he married after afterwards. He had a second uh, marriage and had um, children. And I I did some cold letter writing. And fortunately, she had um, changed. I would never say this normally, but fortunately she changed her name, her maiden name to her married name. Not a great thing to do, but anyway. Um, so, but in this case, her married name was really unusual. So I was able to track her down in England, in Bristol. And I wrote to her and said, would you know anything about Ethel? And she said, my mother... When my father died, my mother saved all of his papers and he had kept all of his papers about Ethel, about her medical history. He was a doctor, about their wedding. He kept their wedding album and his wife kept that wedding album from his first marriage and all the letters that Ethel had sent to him. And so all of this stuff and Sally Prolitis said to me, I knew I was keeping this stuff for some reason. You know, I my, my mother handed them down to my sister. And when my sister died, she gave them to me. And now I'm going to send them to you. So I got all of that information. The next thing, oh, maybe there's more than one more thing. Um, I was able to find the Japanese couple that Ethel housed in her apartment in 1961. She met them through her church in Toronto and she, she felt a, a, an extreme hatred for Japanese people, for, you know, from children to old people. She just when she returned to Canada, she couldn't abide by any Japanese people. She she said, I would cross over the street rather than walk on the same sidewalk if I saw a Japanese person coming along. Didn't matter how innocent they were. Anyway, I was able to track down the couple that she asked if they would stay in her apartment um, because they were in need of housing. And they remembered Ethel. They sent me pictures and stories, and that was a, that was a wonderful piece of information. But also, last piece, I, I found Ethel's manuscript for the cookbook in a museum on Manitoulin Island, and I had called them up. I think it was October or November and said, do you have any information about Ethel Mulvaney? Because it was in the small town where she was from. And the guy said, mm, I've never heard of her. Um, I'll, I'll get back to you. Well, he never got back to me. So the next summer, 
we made the trek out to Manitoulin Island to this tiny little museum because you never know what's going to happen when you knock on the door. And when I opened the door of that museum, they had a little exhibit on Ethel Mulvaney. And it turned out that the guy that I had spoken to, well, he just lost my phone number. But he said, uh, you know, well, Ottawa was calling, so we thought it was important. So we went and looked. And sure enough, they had they had her wedding veil from when she was married in India in 1933. They had her the manuscript of her cookbook and many other pieces of her ephemera, wartime ephemera. And it was just like, you know, that was my... I don't know what I was I was looking all over for that manuscript of the cookbook. I knew it must be out there. And there it was. So those are my treasures. Such such treasures. <laughs> at, at what stage did you I think you said you started off thinking I can do an article with this. At what stage did you say this is going to be a book? Hmm. Um Hmm. I remember when I first came across her cookbook. Oh, yeah. By the way, I was looking all over the world via the internet for a copy of the printed cookbook under the name of Ethel Mulvaney. Well, she didn't put her name on it. She just put her initials on it. So uh, eventually I found that we had a copy in the Moore Museum Library under ERM. <laughs> and so, I, you know, that, that was a thrill. But then, I, you know, when I opened it up, I thought, this is, these are not the recipes I thought they would be. You know, it's for steamed puddings, steamed puddings galore. And I thought, oh, they're in Singapore. It is so hot and humid in Singapore. Why would you dream of that? There's a beautiful fruit and all. And this, these are recipes that the women were remembering. Anyway, finally, I got it through my head that, of course, they are using their recipes to transport themselves to a happy time and a wonderful place when they were with their families. I so, you know, that was interesting. I thought at that point, I thought, oh, you know, maybe I could do a magazine article, not just an academic article, but, you know, a magazine article. I could gather around a bunch of people, maybe researchers from the War Museum, and I could write this up with pictures and that would be fun. But then I, that, then I got the tapes. And I started to learn more about the background of the recipes and the people who wrote it. And that, as I said, that just opened up the whole story for me. And I knew, yep, this is it. I've got, I've got a really great story to tell. And I did have a hiccup when I found out that she suffered from bipolar disorder. Because I thought, oh, that's that's beyond my capacities. I'm not a medical doctor. I don't I don't know anything about this 
illness and this is going to make her an unreliable narrator of her own stories. Those were my initial thoughts. And then I realized that her illness just made her story deeper and much more interesting. So that's the end of my treasure. (laughs) What are your thoughts on uh, what you learned from the process of writing the book and learning about Ethel, uh, your thoughts about war and how women were looked at then and, and the, the process of erasing them from public memory. Like did that, did your thoughts about that change and evolve during the course of researching this book? You know, it's always disheartening when when you see how downgraded women's stories were in war. And, you know, of course, men's stories, they're, they're generally out on the battlefield and it's instantaneous life and death. And of course that is really compelling, but, you know, a lot of war for men and women is, is in the head. It's fought in the head. And certainly when you're a prisoner, uh, a lot of it is it is in your head. So, you know, when I read a memoir of another woman who was a prisoner in Changi, one of the other civilian women, and she went back to Changi uh, years, years later, like maybe the early 80s, and she was going on a tour of uh, the museum and mentioned to the person who was guiding the tour that she was in the jail. Uh, she was a prisoner. And the I think it was a, a female um, tour guide said, no, no, it was just men. And this woman said, no, <laughs> there were women there. There were a lot of women there. And that, you know, the the... Military men came into the prison in the last year and a half of the war. Uh, And then the civilian men and women who were in Changi jail from March of 1942, they were all moved to a different uh, prisoner war camp. So the official story was all about the military men and they had had one hell of a time it's true you know it was it was extremely hard for them but to be completely erased from history was quite it's astonishing it's disheartening I said at the beginning it was disheartening I shouldn't be surprised but it is disheartening so you know there have been other memoirs uh written by women who have um who survived Changi jail and you know then there's this this biography that I've written so I think each of them are like a drop in the bucket that's starting to slosh around a little bit because there's enough of them in there that it's making a difference these stories are coming out yeah little by little are there any uh, recommendations for the ones that you were just referencing? 
Well, uh, a really good one is by Freddie Bloom. Dear Philip, A Diary of Captivity in Changi, 1942 to 1945. That's old, um, but it's really good. She's a great writer. She and Ethel Mulvaney did not get along very well. Um, She's a good writer. In the Shadow of the Rising Sun by Mary Thomas. Um, and I'll, I'll just, there was another cookbook called Good Food by PCB Newington. And he was on the men's side of the jail. And he started a gourmet club. And this was when they moved to the other uh, prisoner of war camp, Syme Road. And they had a sheet of asbestos that they put on top of their knees and they pretended it was the dining room table and they sat around and discussed a menu. And gradually he developed re uh, this recipe collection out of those menus. And he used to trade with the women because the women had more recipes. And he would trade seeds uh, for flowers and vegetables for recipes. Um, so those are all good reads. What are your thoughts on either the most gratifying or perhaps the most surprising aspect of the research that you ran across when you were looking at all of these women's stories? I was just delighted that Ethel kept so many scraps of paper. I think, and, and not just Ethel, but clearly her husband, he... She had written him a little note when they were captured and he was sent to a military prison and she was sent to the civilian prison. And, uh, you know, I, I have it here in my records, this little tiny note that she wrote to him and gave him just before he headed off and she wouldn't see him again for years. And I think the people living through this time, they, they just knew they wanted to keep a record of this. It was important that people remember. And you know, whether it's it's a copy of a of an, a military order or a note from a lover, they 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 kept things. And there are treasures. And you know, quite often they're they're in disparate archives, but it's an amazing thing how much people kept. So I guess, I mean, you know, I, I just want to get rid of stuff. Um, and, and they were very good at keeping things. So I guess that surprised me. And I was also like, thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for, for saving, you know, invoices. It just, the stupidest little things. I, I just love going into archives and finding the things that people have saved. Yeah. The the aspect of her story that highlights the medical treatment that was given to those with perceived or actual mental illness at that time, that was... Um, 
I think that's such an important thing to to highlight for um, not just the treatment itself, but the long term impact that it had on those individuals. And then you also touch on how she had such a battle to try to to get any kind of financial compensation after the war, and just how these kinds of things sort of domino on someone after they've been through such a a horrific experience as being a POW. Yeah, it was tough. <laughs> it was it was with the help of her family that I was able to get a hold of some of her medical records, particularly those from the Royal Bethlehem Hospital, otherwise known as Bedlam, where her husband committed her after the war. And they they keep all those records. <laughs> Thank goodness. And so, you know, I was able to see just how many times she um, received electric shock therapy. And, you know, the fact that I, I, you know, from external research, I knew that there were no sedatives at that time. So it was amazing that she didn't break any bones. And and of course, there was the insulin therapy treatment that she received in India, which when you read about the uh, side effects, it really was like going into prisoner of war camp again, because it would make the, the patients really hungry. I mean, starving hungry so that they would actually balloon out in weight uh, afterwards, just eating because of, of these shots that they were receiving and it was dangerous and it and you know it gave you diarrhea um so all of that it's it's horrendous and i'm i'm very glad that records were kept of that i was not able to get directly her medical records from the toronto psychiatric hospital however as you allude to her her um efforts to get compensation after the war, that that commission, uh, the War War Claims Commission, actually uh, had quite a few of her medical records. And so I was able to delve into those and see how often she was committed to hospital after the war and what her state of mind was like and to read about other people talking about her state of mind and just, you know, those pages helped me imagine what it would be like to sit in a little courtroom in downtown Toronto, surrounded by men who were determining your financial fate and talking about you, not to you, but about you. And what what you looked like, how how crazy you were, um, how incapable you were, and she, you know, at this point she's a divorced or about to be divorced woman in in the nineteen fifties and sixties in Canada that you know was suffering from PTSD and bipolar disorder. And she had arrived home in Canada with $14 in her pocket. You know, that, anyway, those, uh, 
those records were very telling of Canadian society, I think, and our attitudes. Anyway, she did get the money, but she fought. Yeah, definitely. She, um, that, that's an example, but every, the thread throughout that store or this book of yours, it's so beautifully written. And, and to me, the, the one thing that does jump out so much is her resilience and how, um, beautifully you highlight that. It's impressive. You know, it is impressive. And when I was launching this book in the middle of a pandemic, um, <laughs> one of the activities I did was host imaginary feasts. And with the help of a few other people, there were invitees from really all over the world who came uh, to the, our virtual table. And, you know, we were we had Ethel in mind. I, you know, told them about the story, but then we each told stories about what we wanted, uh, you know, a memorable meal and what we would want to eat if we were starving, hungry. And, you know, I think it uh, it highlighted. Well, the pandemic highlighted a small aspect of what it would be like to be isolated and to have to think about food as seriously as as the prisoners did what was your uh, what was your meal well <laughs> you know just as boring as the recipes because by this time i realized that it is not you know a complexity of flavors it's what's going to fill your belly as as my my daughter i i had i have recipes in the cook in the book the in the biography from the cookbook and my daughter tested one of them i had everybody i had them all tested and my daughter said of the one she tested she said it it tastes like a heart attack it's just so rich and filling and deep fried and whatnot so my meal would be baked macaroni and cheese (laughs) just the way my mother made it and the way my sister and I still make it so it's evocative of times past with family gatherings and that's just what the the women in Chagi were doing between the research that you've done for um your first book that you talked about um mothers of heroes mothers of martyrs um world war one and propaganda the politics of war the the politics of grief the politics of grief i apologize the propaganda that you address in that book and then the research that you did in world war two i i just uh I wonder if uh, there's a, a pattern that you saw or an evolution of the use of propaganda that, that came out to you. People got away with a lot more in the First World War. Uh, people, you know, started studying propaganda after that war because it was so important in that war. And so it, it became a real thing to learn about so you couldn't have written the same stories about mothers of soldiers 
for the Second World War as you could get away with in the First World War. You know, the, there was stories that I I didn't get into the book. I, you know, I found them afterwards. Actually, when I was researching about Ethel, I received from the Manitoulin Expositor Office, they sent me a copy of this commemorative um, issue of the of the newspaper and it had all these stories of heroes and heroines from Manitoulin in in all the wars it was for November 11th issue and there was a story about Ethel but there was also this other piece from World War One about a uh, mother a selfish mother who tried to prevent her two sons from going to war. And both of them died. The first one went to the big city, Toronto, and, and succumbed to drink and was um, cut down by a train. He was so drunk and, and the body parts had to be put in a bag and returned to his mother, all that was left of him. And the second one died of, of consumption. And she was left, uh, a, you know, a woman who had no, a selfish woman who had no sons in heroes' graves. And her husband went off to war, 50, 60-year-old husband went off to war and he was killed too. So <laughs> you would never see that in the Second World War. You could only get away with that kind of pure propaganda in the First World War. What are the uh, current projects or upcoming projects that you have going on? Well, um, <laughs> I I have been pondering uh, writing about a cookbook. I'm not a great cook, you know. It's it's something I can do, but um, <laughs> there's a rather well known cookbook in Canada called the Five Roses Cookbook. It was first published in 1913, and it's still available. It was partially community and partially corporate cookbook. It's a flower cookbook, but with other recipes in it for stews and things. And the company that did it, Lake of the Woods Milling Company, solicited recipes from across the country. So women in 1912, women from uh, Cape Breton to Vancouver Island, over 2,000, not sorry, not just women, men too, uh, over 2,000 of them rode in to the Lake of the Woods Milling Company with their recipes, some of which were included in the cookbook. By 1932, there were over 15,000 people who rode in because they had a new edition. And Ethel took a 1932, her 1932 edition of Five Roses into the jail with her. And it had photographs of pictures. So she probably was salivating over the photographs. But I just thought that that's an interesting story about uh, people who were compelled to join in. And they felt that there was some kind of a national community through food and of course you know there are many um 
groups of people who were not included in that. And I thought it would be interesting to look at how how some of those other groups, you know, were affected by the development of the wheat industry in Canada. Actually, one of the, I will stop after this. Um, one of the um, interesting things about this cookbook is that there was a, a Ukrainian language version of it, Eng English, French, and Ukrainian. So, you know, it was from out West and they translated the Five Roses cookbook. So I think there's something going on there. I just, I'm not sure of the contours of that story, but what kind of a picture can you get from that of Canada? Yeah, and, and looking at the voices that were omitted. Mm -hmm. This could be a real research nightmare. <laughs> You know, I remember someone told me, you know, you want you want to find your book in a box. You just go to the archives, you pull out that one or two boxes and, you know, there's all the material you need. Well, I think if there is, you know, even a good article out of this one, let alone a book, it's going to be in archives across the country. So what would you say is your definition of justice? Uh, and also, has your concept of justice evolved over the course of all of this research that you've been describing? Stephanie, this is a wickedly difficult question. <laughs> um, so, you you sent this question out, and I thought about it, and the first thing that came to my mind was the word balance. But then I thought, well, she's going to want more than that. <laughs> so I, I thought, well, I will go and look at the embodiment of justice in art form. Because this is, you're an artist. So I thought, okay, this is what I will key into. So I dragged my husband down to the Supreme Court of Canada, the building down on Wellington Street, on a cold, rainy, windy day. And I, he said, you know, you can look it up online. I said, no, no, I want to stand underneath the figure of justice and look up at her. There are two statues in front of the Supreme Court. Both of them were sculpted by Walter Allward, who also did the Vimy Ridge Memorial which is in France and it's Canada's World War I memorial. It's, it's actually very beautiful. And, so, and I had known about that. There is a mother figure who stands at the front of it. So it was of interest to me, but anyway, so he did these two statues and I, I had thought, okay, okay, statue of justice. Well, she's going, it's going to be a female and she's going to be holding scales and she's going to be blindfolded. And so clearly that is something, you know, embedded in my memory, but not all statues of justice are like that. And Walter Allward's in front of the Supreme Court is not like that. She is cloaked. She, she has, um, you know, a heavy cloak around her over her head. And, and she is, her arms are resting on 
the hilt of a, an enormous sword. So that that's all. She's looking pensive, of course, and strong. And this is so it's a metaphor for for justice. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, I kind of like the idea of the scales that there's there's this balance, there's equality. And I I like the idea of, of a blindfold because it means that there's there's no bias in the judgment. And the sword, which is also often depicted, is uh, evoking the idea that uh, the the state uh, has the force to invoke or to to meet out justice. It will be enforced, you know, to to try and right wrongs uh, through punishment. Um, Allward himself said. Through truth and justice, war might cease and peace would descend over the earth. Well, I love all those ideas, but it's not where we're at now. And I, I do think the idea of justice is, is a moving target. That, you know, the, the person's case in Canada in 1928, when five women took a case to the Supreme Court to uh, argue that they be eligible to sit in the Senate, that women be eligible to sit in the Senate. And they, uh, it's, it says in, in the, the British North America Act that persons are allowed to sit in the Senate. So they wanted to be deemed persons. Well, the Supreme Court of Canada said, nope, women are not persons. They can't sit in the Supreme Court. Well, they took it to England and they took their case to England. And then finally, the Judicial Privy Council of Canada overturned the Supreme Court's ruling and said, okay, women are actually persons. So th there is a... Uh, an example of how justice is shifting, you know, in, in our time, justice is shifting. So I thought afterwards, actually, I don't want my justice to be blindfolded. I want her to be farsighted so that she can see uh, change and adapt. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more about Dr. Evans and her work. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe on your preferred platform. And if you'd like to support more episodes like this, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review. You can also leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast or email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. And the podcast Patreon page has rewards for those interested at patreon.com forward slash Warfare of Art and Law. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere.
What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.